0: welcome to a bigger life where you can break through the distractions stop listen and speak to god in prayer i'm dave cover i want to help you use the bible as your conversation with god so you can live a bigger life It's important for us to understand that the bigger story that your life is in is not Disneyland. It's not Disney World. It's one of human betrayal and slander, hatred of the good. The good is always being betrayed. The good is always being slandered. The good is always being hated. And that is particularly true when it comes to God as king in our lives. And this Psalm of David in Psalm 109 is one of those psalms where David is speaking as a type of Christ. Christ is the Greek word that meant Messiah, the Hebrew word Messiah. David was a Messiah figure. He's a prefiguring, what's called a type, and many things about him are pointing to what the true Messiah, who the true Messiah will be. So whenever you're reading through the psalms and you see that a psalm is a psalm of David, at least have a little bit of a heads up that there might be some things in this psalm that give us a glimpse of the voice of Jesus. And Psalm 109 is one of those psalms that's very uncomfortable for us as modern readers to read because there are passages in this psalm where David is praying that God would bring vengeance upon somebody who has betrayed him. They had an office as an insider. They had a privileged position of leadership in his administration, cabinet, whatever you want to call it, and they have used that to betray him as king. Now, right away, that should make you think of Jesus and Judas, Judas being one of the inner apostles, one of the apostles, and he betrays Jesus and brings about his arrest and crucifixion. And that's why Peter, in particular, when he is talking about the, the betrayal of Jesus in Acts chapter one, verse 20, he quotes this psalm, verse eight, "May his days be few, may another take his office." Jesus quotes this psalm in John 15:25, when he's talking about his enemies, and this psalm in verse three says, "They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause." Matthew, no doubt, is alluding to this psalm in Matthew 27, verse 39, when it talks about Jesus being mocked as they wag their heads against him and mock him. That's verse 25 in this psalm. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Now, the reason I'm saying all this is because we, as you read through the psalms, when you're on your own, you're reading through the psalms, you are no doubt going to come across psalms where it just puts a bad taste in your mouth because it sounds vengeful. It sounds like you're praying for somebody to be judged by God and for God to bring suffering in their lives because that is what David is doing in this psalm, no doubt. And it's important to understand that David is not cursing people with his own lips. He's not bringing curses upon his enemies. He's praying for God to bring judgment upon his enemies. But David is speaking as the Lord's anointed, the, the coming Messiah. And the New Testament interprets this psalm Christologically. In other words, with Jesus as the Lord's ultimate anointed Messiah and Judas as the ultimate accuser, the betrayer of the good. So in many ways, this psalm was prophetic not necessarily that we should see the coming Jesus in this psalm if you didn't already know the story, but almost anachronistically, you look back after knowing the story of Jesus and his betrayal and seeing how the Bible had been portraying this, speaking of this all along. Here's the thing, is that the story of betrayal of the good, slander of the good, hatred of the good, is the story that we live in. We've done it. I've done it. You've done it. And we should expect it against us, Jesus says, because it's the world we live in. You really can't be a Christian in this world being a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus says, you're going to be hated just like they hate me. You're going to be slandered just like they slander me. You will do good and they will curse you in response just like me. So verse five in this psalm is something Jesus very much experienced and says we are going to experience as his followers. Here it says, so they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. This is, could be a description of the human condition. This could be a description that God would give of all humanity. They reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Verse 2, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. This could have been written today. It could have been written today in situations where God is describing how humanity treats him, but it could be written today in describing in many ways how we are going to be treated by others. This 3,000-year-old psalm is giving us a reality that we don't live in the in disney world we live in the real world and this real world story is one of christ being hated and betrayed and slandered and therefore suffering and dying but that god through that brought about the greater good and brought about redemption and is bringing about the kingdom of god and that's the story we're in we shouldn't be surprised that that story is being replayed over and over and over again in the lives of god's people but when you read through this psalm, I mean, there are passages that you know, talk about things that uh, you wouldn't pray for somebody. For example, you wouldn't pray verse 13. You shouldn't pray verse 13. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. Verse 17, He loved to curse. Let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing. May it be far from him. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. Verse 29, May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. These are prayers for God to bring retributive justice. This is specific prayer that God would do what they wanted to do to David so that God would do to David's accuser what David's accuser wanted to do to David. Now, this is not David calling down curses, but David is looking to to God for justice. He's not taking things into his own hands. He's bringing this before God for God to do what God decides to do. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, he says, if the Jews cursed more bitterly than the pagans, this was, I think, at least in part because they took right and wrong more seriously. Now, technically, again, David is not cursing. He's praying for God to bring judgment. But C.S. Lewis says that, this, that David would pray for God to bring judgment in the lives of his enemies, in the lives of those who betrayed him, slander him want to destroy his life to show that doubtless there is a God that judges the earth. David was praying to God to show that there is a God who judges evil, that right and wrong are serious. And the most serious right and wrong is to betray the Lord's anointed. So C.S. Lewis says, against all this, the ferocious parts of the psalm serve as a reminder that there is in the world such a thing as wickedness and that it is hateful to God. So these prayers aren't prayers that we pray. We're supposed to pray for our enemies and do good to those who curse us, not return evil to bless those who curse us. These are not prayers that we are to pray, so to speak, for ourselves, but they are prayers for us to see the words of Jesus, the Lord's ultimate anointed, and the judgment he's going to bring against God's enemies, against all wickedness. And slander and betrayal is a particular kind of hideous wickedness in the Bible. We should keep that in mind. The people that David is praying for God to judge are wicked by their hatred and by their accusing David and wanting to destroy his life. Ultimately, what David is praying is that this wicked betrayer would be removed from the earth and all those who are his progeny, so to speak, who are his followers. And that is a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do when he brings about his kingdom. So we need to understand that the biblical view is that those who falsely accuse God's anointed king and speak evil of him and betray him attack all of God's people. They attack God's redemptive people all throughout history. And God promised back in the days of Abraham, when God was giving his covenant to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he said that he would curse those who curse him and bless those who bless him. So therefore, David is praying that God will do exactly what God has already said and promised he will do through Abraham's offspring. The ultimate flourishing of the earth and the well-being and peace on the earth and of God's people depend upon God doing exactly this. All betrayers of God and betrayers of the Lord's anointed threaten the whole fabric of creation and the whole fabric of the people of God. So ultimately, this psalm and psalms like this, as you read through them, when you read these kinds of psalms, are not about a personal vendetta between two people, David and his enemy, but it's about a much bigger story. It's about the ultimate struggle between the forces of darkness and the forces of good. The forces of darkness betray and slander and hate because it's good, because it's right. And whoever it was who is betraying King David in this psalm all those centuries before Jesus, the thousand years before Jesus lived, it was ultimately a foreshadowing of Judas and in some sense the Jewish religious leaders who killed Jesus. The king who had shown Judas nothing but friendship was betrayed with lies and treachery. So again, this psalm is foreshadowing of all this, but it's not an example of prayers that we are to pray against our enemies. We're to pray for those who persecute us. We're to pray for our enemies. We're to bless them and not curse them. But God will bring this future judgment. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. In part, we are praying for the same kind of judgment that David is praying for in this psalm. Because unless God brings that kind of final judgment, where He removes, cuts off the betrayer of the good from the earth, the new heavens and the new earth will still be spoiled by sin. So, if you're reading through this psalm and wanting to pray and wanting to draw near to God and worship and praise, you know these kinds of psalms have to be navigated. You know, you have to. Find the parts that resonate with you, and understand the other apart, the other parts that are offensive to our modern ears, as being something that is ultimately still about the larger story of judgment. But you wouldn't pray through them as part of your drawing near to God, but you would pray parts like the very first verse: "Be not silent, O God, of my praise." And you might stop and think a minute and say, "God of my praise." What is the God of my praise? What do I praise most in my life? Is God really my greatest praise? Is, is he the God of my praise or is something else the God of my praise? Do I praise my sports teams more than I praise God? Do I praise my political heroes or political party more than I praise God? What is it that my heart lifts up is God really the God of my praise? Now, I'm not saying this to, to pile a sense of guilt. The reason I'm saying this is because this is how we read the scriptures. Again, remember, we're not, We have to understand the difference between worth and worthiness. We're unworthy, but we are worth the love of God. And Christ is our mediator. So we're not having to defend ourselves. We're not having to justify ourselves. We don't have to minimize our sin. We can just be honest and come to God and be reflecting and thoughtful and say, does my life have the joy of praising God the most? Or am I trying to find the joy of praise in lesser things? Nothing wrong with praising things that are our sports team and people, things we like, art we like, music we like. That's all great. But is God the God of my praise? Is he the God of my praise? Because if he's not, then in some sense, I'm participating in the betrayal of the good. I'm lifting up lesser things to be a greater glory in place of God. And so rather than, again, we don't want to be accused, we don't want to have this sense that I, I'm, I'm, I'm accusing myself, but I want to be convicted by this. Conviction gives me hope. Accusing makes me have discouragement and despair. I'm worthless. I'm no good. I don't belong that's not what you want to say after you being convicted. You want to have this sense of, I want, to, I want God to be the God of my praise. I want to worship him the most. I want to love him the most. And David's request is that the, the God of his praise would be not silent in response, that God would speak, that God would in, in some way Reveal himself more in David's mind and David's heart. And I think that's a really good thing for us to pray. Be not silent. O oh God of my praise, I praise you. I worship you. I lift my hands to you as most worthy of my love and most worthy of my worship and most worthy of my adoration and most worthy of my praise. Be not silent. Pour out your Holy Spirit in my heart. Make shine the light of of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ more and more in my heart. I pray that you would enlighten the eyes of my heart more and more so that I would know the hope to which you have called me and the riches of your glorious inheritance for me in Christ and your incomparably great power in my life. And I believe you. I trust you. So after David then takes 19 verses to... Pray the prayers that we were talking about of God bringing judgment upon the one who has betrayed him and seeks his life. He says in verse 21, but you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me. Ultimately, David is entrusting himself entrusting his life to the one who is the only one who can ultimately do anything about it. Deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me, God, deliver me, because your steadfast love for me is good. Your steadfast love is something I can trust in. Your steadfast love is the foundation of my life. Those who slander me and threaten me, you, oh God, are my Lord and you will deal on my behalf for your namesake. Verse 26, help me, O Lord, my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. It's a great prayer. Just to have in our own head, in our own pocket, help me, O Lord, my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Deliver me because of your steadfast love, because you are good. Help me, save me. Verse 28, let them curse, but you will bless. And God has promised to bless you because ultimately Jesus is the one who removes evil even from your own life by taking the evil in your life upon himself, upon his own body, suffering on the cross when he was betrayed. And he was betrayed so that you and even in your betrayal against him could be forgiven and brought into his kingdom. So that he could bless you and not curse you, so that he could deliver you because of his steadfast love for you. So the last verse, David says, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Whatever problems you're going through, whatever ways you're being betrayed and slandered and hated, the ultimate truth in our story is that Jesus stands at the right hand of God for you, and he stands at your right hand to save you from those who condemn your soul to death. He has taken on the betrayal so that he can save you. I think the Apostle Paul has this very psalm in mind when he is writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy. The last chapter we really have, the last words of Paul before he was executed himself by those who slandered him and betrayed what is good and brought about his death. Paul penned these words to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4:14. 4, Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul saying ultimately what this psalm is saying, There are those who do damage to us, and God will deal with them. God will judge them. We can't judge them. It's not our job to judge them. It's not our job to curse them. But Paul did tell Timothy, beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. But then Paul's talking about his own trial, and he says, At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. Because Jesus took the betrayal and took our sin upon himself and he rose from the dead to defeat betrayal, defeat slander and defeat hatred and defeat death, defeat the powers of evil and wickedness, the powers of darkness and ultimately overcome evil with good. And we want to be on that side, on his side in this story. We want to stand by him so that he stands by us. He stands at the right hand of the needy to save him from those who condemn his soul to death, David says. Lord, I know that you stand by me. I know that you are always at my right hand and I shall not be shaken. I know that you are always 100% with me without being any less anywhere else. You are infinitely always focused on me without being any less focused anywhere else. You are focused on me as if I was the only person in your entire universe. You are present with me as if you had nowhere else to be. You stand by my right hand to save me from those who condemn my soul to death, to save me from death itself to save me from the slander of the evil one, to save me from my own betrayal of you and how that has brought wickedness in my own life. You save me by taking that upon you, upon yourself, upon your body on the cross. You've taken this certificate of all my sins and you have nailed that certificate that condemned me. You have nailed it to the cross. And now my life is hidden with you and when you come, I will come and be revealed with you in glory. But even in this life, Lord, you are my help. You are at my right hand. You are with me, and I pray that you would help me and that you would deliver me. Deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love toward me is forever, and it is good. And you will deliver me from every evil deed and bring me safely into your heavenly kingdom. Let them curse, but you will bless. You have blessed, and the greatest blessing is yet to come because Jesus was betrayed on my behalf. Be not silent, O God, of my praise. I worship you. I bow to you. I trust you. I believe you. I praise you. I give glory and honor to you. With my mouth, I extol you and exalt you and lift you high in my heart. Be exalted, O God, and be not silent. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to A Bigger Life, a podcast of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and give it a rating so people can find this content more easily or consider texting it to a friend or posting it on social media. Thanks for listening.